0: If it was up to me. we would sing together as a leadership group every Sunday. I um, love to uh, partner and stand side by side with these men and women who love Christ and demonstrate their love for Christ, by their love for Christ's bride in the church. I want you to know that our role as leaders in the church is by grace, not by works. We are sinners like all, but according to God's grace working in us, He has chosen the weak things, the foolish things, the unworthy things, to demonstrate His supreme glory and power, to use us as instruments for His great purposes. And so we have been called to this role to serve Christ's church. It's a humiliating role because we are so unworthy, but we do it by faith in the gospel. And we rejoice because God has produced food in our midst and we know it's not because of us, but all because of his sovereign grace. So uh, my personal thanks, along with the elders and pastors, to our dear men and women who uh, serve and, and care and uh, lead our, our people. I want you to know you, we are so blessed. These men and women are gifts to our church. So please pray for them. Appreciate them for their labor. Love them and honor them in your hearts, and it'll be good for you. Uh, God will bless you. Shine, make His face shine upon you as you honor those who labor and serve us. Now, uh, thanks, Pastor Joe, for uh, sharing with us our our significant milestones, and and uh, our hearts are beating together. I agree that the, the significant milestones of our church happened uh, not. Um, in any event or activity, not even in uh, our flock groups, in a sense, or our missions teams, our most significant uh, milestone events occurred in our hearts. They were spiritual in nature, not external. They were internal. They were not public. They were private, and they were done not by man but by the by God through the Holy Spirit by the Word of God. The significant events occurred. When God's word was preached, and by the Holy Spirit we understood, our eyes were opened, our ears we could hear, and our minds could comprehend, and God worked that great work of transformation, of growth and maturing in our hearts, that's where the significant events happened. So as I consider the past 10 years, it's filled with just awe and amazement. Um, ten years of studying the Word of God together. I did a, a quick calculation of about fifty sermons a year, not counting retreats. Five sermons during retreat, twice a year, so six hundred sermons. Main ser- services alone, six hundred sermons they have heard together. And I would venture to guess, if you were to add all the second hour uh, teachings, all our conferences, our special events. In ten years, we've sat under over a thousand sermons together. Almost a thousand hours of listening and studying the Word of God. As we recount those thousand sermons, all of them were important because they were from the Word of God. Many of them were significant, but a few of them were special. A few of them were extraordinary in that God in His sovereign wisdom chose to use those sermons at that time to bless us, mature us, and to grow us in our faith. Our study last week on Psalm 19 was one of them. Brief review of these different sermons, Matthew, 20, Matthew 16, when we studied early on how Christ promised He will build His church. That building up a cornerstone is not our job, it's not our responsibility. That's God's responsibility. Our our job, our work is faithfulness. That if we abide in the vine, if we are faithful to to believe the gospel and study God's word and observe them in our lives and preach it and teach it, God will do the rest. Radically transformed our church. Acts two, forty one through forty seven, when we looked at the example of the early church. Uh, after the sermon at Pentecost, Peter's sermon. Thousands were saved, and their response was to love Christ's church. They were saved by the gospel, and their heart affections were geared towards the body of Christ. And they devoted themselves to the local church of Jerusalem. And we studied that together. Oh, what joy there was to us. What challenge, what heart-enlarging instructions we received from Acts chapter 2 on how we are to devote ourselves to the church of Christ here we all well remember Matthew 26. If you've been around with us for any number of years, you heard this sermon at least two or three times. If you've been here for ten years, you heard Matthew 26. A sermon on Peter's denial at least five times, if not more. If it was up to me, I, I would preach Psalm 19, Matthew 26 and 27, and Isaiah 6 over and over again, till Christ returned. Uh, for me, uh, this was such an important sermon. Seeing Peter's denial of Christ, His pride that caused him to fall away, to go astray. Remember Peter's pride. I will never disown you. I will never deny you. You are wrong. You don't know my heart. I love you more than all these men. We saw his pride and his utter faithlessness to pray. Right? His utter inability to devote himself to pray because of his pride. And we saw the humiliation of him denying the Lord before his servant girls. And how their eyes met beyond the courtyard. Our Lord was courageously going to the cross on the behalf of Peter's sins, and Peter, what does he do? He cowers in fear, denies the Lord at his most uh, needful hour, and he betrays his own testimony, demonstrating his pride. He goes uh, goes outside and weeps bitterly. But we didn't end with that valley uh, of of the study in the valley. We began and ended in the height, where in John 21, Christ has three questions for Peter. And all he wants to know is what's in Peter's heart. What is Peter's motivation? What is prompting him? What is driving him? Before it was pride. He was saying all the right things. Those are good things to say. I will not deny you. I love you. I will go to prison for you. I will die for you. These are good things to say. But previous to the cross, it was all prompted by pride. But now Christ wants to know what's in your heart. What's motivating you? And Peter says, I love you. I love you. I love you. You know that I love you. That yes, I'm a sinner through and through. On my own, apart from Christ, there's no hope for me. I can't do anything. But I can tell you my motivation, as far as I, I know, is to love you. That's, that's why I want to follow you. And that's all Christ needs to know. If you're motivated by love for me, then you can now you're ready to be a, the shepherd. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, take care of my flock. You're ready now to serve and lead Christ church. What a precious sermon, a study that was. And then we went to Matthew 27 where we saw the crucifixion of Christ. How God was not silent at the cross. He performed miracles on that day. Make, declaring a commentary, giving an exposition of what was occurring to his son. We studied later on 1 Timothy 2, roles of men and women in the church. 1 Timothy 3, qualification of elders. Guys, do you remember First Timothy six, two-part series on marks of a man of God? What he what he's about, what he flees from, what he holds on to, what he what he fights for, what he pursues. What a tremendous study for all the men of our church. We looked at Titus two. Pastor Joe talked about that. Right, that right doctrine is easy. That right doctrine is not. It's just the beginning. It's the first step in a long journey. But the second step is right life. Right. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no works? We are to be doers of the word of God. Christianity is tried and found difficult. The challenge is applying the application of God's truth to our lives and by faith abiding, obeying, living by it, living according to it. And so we were, the gauntlet was, was, was set down for all of us. Are we going to just talk about Christianity? Or are we going to get busy living it out? And are we going to do it in our relationships between older men, younger men, older women, younger women, in our relationships, are we going to live out right life to to serve and bear and, and, and help and minister and love one another as Christ has loved us? And then the Gospel of John, and, and here he was right, that's where we got Jesus died for God. And starting Gospel John was a huge step for me as a preacher now I'll give you a little bit of a I'm going to open, my, open the doors to my office and let you in behind the scenes a little bit uh, for me a Gospel of Matthew uh, was somewhat easy in preaching because it was pretty much Pastor MacArthur preaching in my voice right? it was pretty much Pastor John MacArthur's commentary and with my jokes and my voice <laughs> After we finished the Gospel of Matthew, I kind of wanted to go on my own, but I needed um, a safety net. I needed training wheels lest I fall, so I chose First Timothy. So First Timothy was me preaching, but with Pastor MacArthur as my co-pilot, as my safety net. Now after that, I had a decision to make. Where are we going to study? And I knew that MacArthur has not written a commentary on the Gospel of John yet. It's not out there. If I fit the Gospel of John, I'm on my own. And I, 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 I resolved, I believe that, that I need to study the Word of God on my own. I need to put what I learned into practice and see what happens. Sink or swim, right? And that's kind of hard because you're doing it in public. You're thinking in front of the whole church. Well, I'm going to just trust the Lord and we study the Gospel of John. And that was by the grace of God, my heart, my mind, the Word of God. With a lot of different men helping me, a lot of different teachers and pastors and commentators, but it was, it was me and Pastor MacArthur cheering me on, um, preach the word. And that was a real significant study for, for me and our church. John 3.16, studying the love of God. John 10, Good Shepherd. John 12, God's glory as the ultimate pur- purpose of all things. John 13, our Lord washing the feet of the disciples. John 14-16, through 16, the Upper Room Discourse. And we all remember John 17, right? Many of us were here for that. Our Lord's high priestly prayer. Now, I, I had to choose one sermon to preach this morning. To remember God's faithfulness to us, it was my job to pick one sermon out of a thousand to share with you this morning. and The sermon I chose was a sermon from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Because that's exactly what happened in our history. We studied God's Word, Psalm 19. And when we studied God's Word, we were humiliated to find that we had a wrong view of God. And starting with me, I had a wrong conception of God, wrong view of God, wrong understanding. I assigned to Him attributes and traits that were unworthy of His noble character. That I was erroneously and unknowingly committing blasphemy by saying things of God and believing things about God that were completely untrue, that were inconsistent with the Holy Scriptures. When we studied the Word of God, God gave us this gift, and this gift was Himself. God gave us Himself through the Word of God. And then we were sorrowful over how low a view we had of God. We were broken that we had made Him according to our image. That our conception of God was below His dignity, His majesty, and His greatness. That with our sinful minds, we had imposed upon Him attributes that were completely inconsistent of who He truly is. So, through that study, our eyes were opened to the greatness, the authority, the sovereignty, the holiness of God. And I'll tell you, when I understood this truth, it was like someone punched me in the gut. Maybe you understand, yeah, you had a similar experience. Right, you study the word of God and you discover its great truth. And the greatest truth is God about Himself. And when I discovered God in the scriptures, it was like someone punched me in the gut. I was out of breath. My heart was stuck in my throat. I mean I got rocked. My world changed. And ever since then It is my conviction that the greatest need of my life is to understand God and His gospel, His word, His grace, His truth. And it is my continuing conviction that the greatest need, the most important concern for any Christian is their view of God. It is theology proper. It is where, it's the beginning of systematic theology. It is the great doctrine. It is the single most important truth. This is where truth begins. This is the most important question anyone can ask. Who is God? Just who is this God of the Bible? A.W. Toll said that the most important thought, the most transcendent and penetrating thought is the thought we have after we think of the word God. He says this is the most important thing about us. It is the gravest question before the church and that is always about God Himself. G.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God, what were we made for? God created us. Why? To know God. What aim, therefore, should we set ourselves in life? What should be our ambition in life? The knowledge of God. This is the eternal life that Christ has given to us. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. The knowledge of the Father. He continues, what is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else in the world. The knowledge of God. Therefore, Jeremiah 9, 23, 24 says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast of his strength. Nor the rich man boast of his riches. But let the one who boasts, boast about this. That he understands and knows me. And that is the singular boast of the Christian. That we know God. That we know The truth that delights. The truth that satisfies. The truth that is the most glorious. The truth that brings meaning and reason, purpose, significance to our lives. The knowledge of God. Therefore, John Calvin demanded that his disciples contemplate with steady, unblinking resolution the absolute, incomprehensible and transcendent knowledge of God. He required his students to stare fixedly and without relief into the very center of the blazing glory of God. That is our work. All that we study in the Bible ultimately is to know God. We study Scripture not to satisfy our curiosity, not to puff up in knowledge, not to get better in ministry, improve our service, no, ultimately the purpose, the grand purpose of all our study, all our pursuit in the word of God, is to know the one who created us. Know the one who forgave us. to Know the one who is waiting for each and every one of us at the end of our lives. He is the one waiting for us. He is the one whom we are trying to learn about and to grow in. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. This chapter is a record of how Isaiah received the high view of God. And we find that it was a total sensory experience. It was sensory overload for Isaiah. Right, teachers tell you that if you really want to teach and help students learn, you got to engage uh, as many senses as possible. Right. Engage as many senses as possible. God knows this. And God wanted to teach Isaiah... He wanted to make a permanent impression in Isaiah about God Himself. So he engages all five senses of Isaiah to to impress upon his heart the greatness, sovereignty, the absolute authority of Yahweh. All five senses of Isaiah is recruited here. First of all, Isaiah saw God's sovereign rule. Isaiah saw it. Second, Isaiah heard of God's holiness. Third, Isaiah smelled God's wrath. Fourth, Isaiah tasted his own sinfulness. And then fifthly, God touched Isaiah with His mercy and grace. Isaiah saw God's power and might and majesty. Isaiah heard the angel singing, Holy, Holy, Holy the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah smelled God's wrath. Isaiah tasted his own sinfulness. And then God touched Isaiah with His mercy and grace. Let's begin with what Isaiah saw in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Isaiah went to the temple of God in the year of King Uzziah's death. Time was when Israel was divided into two, Israel and Judah. Uzziah was the king of Judah, a relatively good king. He strengthened that southern kingdom. He made Jerusalem powerful. He reigned for 52 years. His death caused a stir in the nation. The future was bleak. There was lack of stability and fear of possible invasion by foreign enemies. Isaiah, with his heart melting like wax, went to the temple of God. In the year the human king died. And then he says, I saw the Lord. Capital L, lowercase O-R-D. Greek equivalent is Adonai. In verse 3, is capital L-O-R-D. His holy name, Yahweh. The first word Lord is his title as king. In the year the king Uzziah died, the human king, he went to the temple and Isaiah saw the true king. The king of all kings. The sovereign one who exercises sovereignty without hindrance, with full freedom. This king has the right and has the ability. He is unlike any other authority in the world. With his eyes, he looked up and he saw the sovereignty of God. The power, the absolute free power of God. And all that he saw was an expression of this power. He was seated on a throne. He was high and exalted. And the train of this king's robe filled the temple of God. That's what Isaiah saw. He felt like a small ant before a grand canyon when he beheld the powerful display of God's divine authority. He is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega. He is the one who was in charge, the one who was in control. He is the one who gives life and takes away. He does whatever He wants, to whomever He wants, whenever He wants, and no one can hold Him account. No one can hold Him back. No one can call Him to answer. Keep Him accountable. He alone is sovereign. Psalm 103, 19, The Lord has established His throne in heaven. His kingdom rules over all. Psalm 24:10. Who is he? The king of glory, the almighty. He is the king. And then Daniel chapter four, 35. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? This is the king of the most powerful nation at that time, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And this is his testimony. After his mind was taken away, after he went insane for seven years, just like God prophesied, and he regained his 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 mind, and these are the wor- first words out of his mouth after God gave him his sanity back. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God is not a respecter of persons. He does not cater to any man. He is the one who is in charge and He does as He pleases. God has free will. You and I, we don't have free will. I mean, we, we, we age. If we have free will, we would stop the aging process. We don't have free will in terms of our gender, our ethnicity, our height, we don't have authority over uh, our abilities, our, our, our intelligence, where we're limited beings. We have no power to control anything or anyone. It's all an illusion. Any semblance of power, any semblance of control, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's a trick. It's a trick of the trick, it's, it's an illusion. It's, 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 not, it's not reality. But not for God. God, by His word, controls all things. By His word, He created. By His word, He saves. By His word, He gives. And He takes away. And when King Nebuchadnezzar came face to face with this kind of power, he said, all the powers of the earth are regarded as nothing. God is the one. He does as He pleases. No one can hold back His hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? Isaiah went to the temple of God, distraught because an earthly kingdom was, was might be going astray, was weakening, and he saw the true king. And then he heard of God's holiness. After seeing, he heard, verse 2, above him were seraphs, seraphs, a Hebrew word for fiery, fiery ones, they were bright, glorious creatures, angels who surround God's throne to serve and worship Him. These angels had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet, indicating their lowliness. And with two, they were flying, and they were covering their faces with two wings because even God's fiery angels, even though they were without sin, cannot expose themselves fully to the the greatness of God's glory even them they had to cover their eyes because God's glory was too bright too glorious too powerful Exodus 33 after Moses' faithful service to Yahweh yeah he said God, Father I want can I have one request and what what is it and Moses said can I see your face that's all I want I want to see your glory and God said you can't see my face because no man could see my, see my face and live. I will put you on a cleft of a rock and I will pass by you but I will cover your face with my hand. It's all metaphorical speaking indicating though that we are not able to see the full glory of God because of our sinfulness but after I pass by you will see the fading remnants of my glory and that's all that is possible for you. Moses saw that and his face was glory glowing. Just seemed to trace remnants of the fading glory of God as he was passing by. These seraphs, their holy ones, their angels. Even them, they could not see God directly. They were covering their faces with their wings. So in that humble posture, Isaiah heard the most glorious singing. The most awe-inspiring voices filled this large auditorium without any sound equipment. Their voices shrilled, surrounded Him. And they sang out, they cried out, they proclaimed out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Angels are crying out that our God is a thrice holy God. No other attribute of God is so emphasized in the scriptures. Right? No other attribute. No does to say God is love, love, love. Or God is merciful, merciful, merciful. Or anything of that sort. But twice, here in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, it is declared that our God is a thrice holy God. That that is His central characteristic. The core attribute of God is His holiness. His moral righteousness. His glory. His separateness from all that is created. That is why everything that emanates from God is holy. That's why His presence is holy. His spirit is holy. His words are holy. His love is holy. Everything is holy because He is holy authorized holy God he is morally perfect supremely beautiful unapproachable light in him there is no sin blemish or defect there is none like him call it majesty, divinity, greatness value in the end language runs out Words fail to describe what it means that our God is a thrice holy God. So Isaiah saw God's power. He heard of God's holiness. And then Isaiah smelled smoke. There's a book out there. I haven't read the book. I don't know how good the book is, but the title is Genius. The title is A God Who Smokes. god who smokes man so i I have to read what what is this about like what kind of blasphemous book is this i can't wait to uh write a review on amazon.com telling all faithful christians stay away and it's all about how this god who smokes has vanished from christian christianity he's smoking because of his anger right there is god is smoking his nostrils are billowing with smoke his, uh, his face is flushed red. He's, he has unbridled wrath, and there's smoke because he is so angry at sin. That's what Isaiah experienced. Doorpost, threshold shook. The temple was filled with smoke. He smelled smoke. Smoke accompanied God in the Old Testament, indicating His wrath. Exodus 19:18. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke. Because the Lord descended on it with fire, Second Samuel twenty-two seven through nine, the earth trembled and quaked, the foundations of the heavens shook. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth, burning coals blazed out of it. Smoke was the result of God, a holy God, coming into contact with sin, the sign of His wrath, anger, and judgment. It was a sign of the impending judgment of God. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, understood this. Understood about God's wrath, God's hatred, His vehement hatred with all things that are unholy, that are evil, depraved, wicked, and sinful. And so Isaiah responded with these words. Verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. Woe to me, I am ruined. Now Isaiah, as an Old Testament prophet, he understands the word woe. It's a word of condemnation, a word of judgment, a word of doom. And he understood this word, we know, because in chapter 5, he repeats this word again and again to the inhabitants of Judah. He rebukes them, he condemns them. And he says, woe to you, woe to you. Starting with Isaiah 3, 4, and 5, he says, Woe to you, for you parade your sins like Sodom. You don't hide your sins. Woe to you. Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon you. Woe to you who are greedy, who add house to house. Woe to you, those who rise up early, stay up late to get drunk. Woe to you, who draw sin along the cords of deceit, wickedness as with cart ropes. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Champions at mixing, mixing drinks. He calls out. He cries out. He, he, he demeans them. He condemns them. And says, woe to you. For there are many sins. And yet after he sees the greatness of God. And after he hears the holiness of God. After he smells smoke. Smelling the wrath of God. He responds. Cries out, woe is me. I am cursed. I am damned. I am undone. I am judged. I am ruined. I am destroyed. I cannot exist after this. Because God is angry at me. His sights are on me. The object of His umbrella wraps upon me. Why? Because He tastes His own sin. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He uh, tasted his lips, tasted what was in his mouth and he tasted his own depravity and own sinfulness. This is a powerful sense, isn't it, Taste powerful sense there's a TV show on cable I watched a few times and I asked myself and my wife why are we watching this because Andrew Zimmerman's show Bizarre Foods this guy goes around all over the world eating like crickets maggots intestines eating like lizards and all kinds of bloody things and he says, oh, it tastes like chicken. Right? <laughs> it's not that bad. The texture is a little different, but he enjoys it. Right. He actually went to Koreatan Malay, and had this Korean cuisine called sunde. It's like intestines eating it. Oh, it's not that bad. Right. It's like still so blood, blood-soaked intestines. Right. He went to, uh, only one time did I ever see him spit out food. And uh, it was when he went to Thailand and he ate durian. It's a, it's a famous fruit. A, persoon, a person described the smell and taste as smelly socks overlaid with stale vomit. <laughs> his stink is overpowering. Hotels forbid guests to bring it in. Right? He ate durian, and for the first time, he spat it out in front of his guests. This guy had eaten insects and intestines and raw food, blood, he drank it, he ate Dorian, he spat it out. It was, he compared it to rotten, mushy onions overlaid with garbage. Right. Now imagine that taste for a second. Imagine like tasting like smelly socks and garbage and, and rotten onions in your mouth. I believe that's what Isaiah tasted that's what Isaiah experienced in his taste buds. Verse 5, A man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. Biblical principle is that what comes out of the mouth is an expression of the heart. Out of the oarful of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew twelve thirty four. And so when he tasted his own spiritual vomit, what was coming out of his mouth, he discovered how gross, how, how awful, how repulsive his sins are before the sight of a holy God. He was going to the root. He tasted in his mouth, but he understood what his tasting is just an overflow, the spiritual vomit of his heart. So he understood that his heart was unclean. The core, the essence of who he who he was, was filthy, was depraved, was full of evil. Puritan pastor Joseph Aline said There is nothing in man's heart, but there is nothing in man to turn God's heart. But there is more than enough in man to turn God's stomach. When God looks at us, he smokes and he wants to vomit because we are so detestable in his sight even our righteous deeds, even our moral works, even the good things that we attempt to do apart from the gospel they're like menstrual rags in his sight utterly repulsive and then so Isaiah is here he saw God's sovereign rule Heard of God's holiness, he smelled God's wrath, he tasted his own sinfulness, and then you would expect God touched him with death. God killed him, right? God destroyed him. That's what we would expect. The most surprising thing happened. God touched Isaiah with his mercy and grace. Though we are far more sinful than we can ever imagine, we find through the Bible that God's grace is far greater than we can imagine. Verse 6, One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. This is so beautiful, Right? This is so great. It's a visual picture of the atonement. Forgiveness of Isaiah's sins. Here is a beautiful picture of a humble, contrite, broken soul crying out to God to be saved. And here is God in His mercy, love and grace purging the sinner of his many sins and forgiving it and replacing that, that awful taste in his mouth. At the point of contact of His sins, God touches it and replaces it with forgiveness, replaces it with the sweetness of God's mercy, love, and grace. This is salvation given to Isaiah. This is imputation uh, of Christ's righteousness to Isaiah. Isaiah looked forward and saw the cross. We look back and see the cross, but it is still and always the cross that saves. This is the grace that Isaiah experienced was initiated by God, executed by God, and accomplished, finished by God. This holy coal, this live coal from the fire should be painful to the touch. But instead, it was sweet. It was pleasurable. It was delightful to Isaiah. It was pain to Christ. It was painful to Christ. for For, for our Lord to pay for our sins, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to atone for our sins, He had to swallow this life cold. He had to taste it himself and swallow it. Undergo suffering, pain, torture and death on our behalf. But for us, there is no pain. There's only the sweet gift being received by faith. And the Lord speaks. After this, Instruction via five senses. The Lord said, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? The question was, Whom shall I send to do the hardest job in the world? The hardest job in the world is to proclaim God's word, the gospel, to a people who think they're righteous. Right? The people who think that they're unrighteous, it's easy, it's joy. People who are loaded down with sin, shame, and guilt, They're loaded down by the burden of the law. It's joy to preach the gospel. But the people who think that they're righteous, they're good, that they're morally superior than others, they hate the gospel. They hate God. They'll they'll persecute Christians. They'll murder. They they murder Christ's son. God's son, Christ. It's religious. It's the religious people, the Pharisees. Those who take pride in their own righteousness. Who whom shall I send to do this most difficult job? Isaiah responded, Here am I. Send me. After I you know, I shared that illustration last week, mentally tasting food. Right. Many of you have wrote to me, I do the same thing, right? It wasn't about (laughs) Psalm nineteen, it was about tasting food. (laughs) Thanks, brother, you know. (laughs) Um you taste a good meal. I just—it's like existential affections of the heart prompt you to go to that restaurant again. It's not a mental choice. It's not good for me. I just ate a full meal. <laughs> I shouldn't really do this, but it's your just taste buds, just like like a moth to a flame, is drawing you to that restaurant, that meal. Well, likewise, after you tasted the sweetness of God's grace and mercy, knowing Christ serving Christ not a decision you make Like you don't put out an Excel spreadsheet and like pros and cons uh, you don't calculate and program and make decisions in that way after you taste the sweetness of God's love and grace and mercy to the gospel there's nothing better in this world there really isn't nothing even comes close to knowing God and serving Him, Isaiah says, here am I I'm here Send me. God said, Go and tell this people. And tell them this. You will hear, but you will never understand. You will see, but you will never perceive. And more I preach, more your heart will get calloused. Verse 10. More I preach, your ears will get dull, and more I speak, you'll close your eyes. So their senses will become dulled. Right? God used these senses to open Isaiah's Isaiah to the greatness of God and God's grace and glory but to these people more Isaiah proclaims his message their senses will become dulled and calloused and closed verse 11 how long O Lord unto the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants Until the houses are left deserted fields ruined and ravaged unto the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken until the end until God's judgment has come upon the land, you are to do this. There is no revival, no returning to God, just God giving them away to their own pleasures, to the desires of their own hearts. Jewish tradition tells us that Isaiah was faithful to the end. That he never lost his taste for God's mercy and grace. He was faithful the Lord proclaiming this message and tradition tells us that Isaiah met his death by being cut in half during the reign of the evil king Manasseh of Judah Hebrews 11.37 seems to support that I want to ask you do you see God's power authority and sovereignty through the scriptures This is how we see God's power. Not through replicating Isaiah's experience. This is once for all recorded for us that we might see God's glory, His sovereignty through His scriptures. Do you see it? Do you hear the Bible proclaiming that our God is a thrice holy God? Do you smell the smoke? Do you smell God smoking? his anger and wrath towards sin? And then do you taste your own depravity? And What comes out of your heart? Not what you're taking in. What is coming out? What is being produced in your heart? Can you taste that sin? Have you been touched by God's mercy and grace? Has God atoned for your sins? Or do your sins still remain? There are some of you who are partakers in our 10-year anniversary, but who are not children of God. Who are still foreigners to this experience. I, I can describe this experience to you. I can tell you what it tastes like and what it feels to be touched by God's grace, but I can't experience it for you. You have to experience it for yourself. Only God can do that for you as you cry out and pray to God, if these experiences are still amorphous, you're still a foreigner, it's a a foreign understanding for you, God through His Word promises that if you call upon His name, believe Him when it's your heart, you will be saved and you will experience these truths for yourself. Do that today. right? Do that this morning. May this day be a day of God's great working of salvation for you in your life. To close our time, how has this study built our church? Just uh, closing our time, might look at how this study uh, matured us and helped us grow over the years. I think first of all, um, it is through this sermon and sermons like this that we discovered God as he is. That we came away with a higher view of God, that we are still pursuing a higher high view of God. We discovered God as He is. John four twenty four, worship him in spirit and in truth. I think early on we had a lot of zeal, but it was zeal without knowledge. We gained knowledge through the Holy Scriptures. And God has helped us to discover this great God of the scriptures. Let us not turn away to something that's as if they're more valuable and precious to us. Let's continue to savor, delight in the knowledge of who God is. Let's continue to delve deep into the doctrine of, of God, of His attributes, and grow in the knowledge of Him. Secondly, this is the truth that has caused us to uh, savor God and live for Him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat and drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So when we come together as a church, we're here to worship God, not to focus on ourselves, not to focus on man's felt needs, not to focus on evangelism of the world, We have gathered here Sunday after Sunday and our hearts are are filled with with praise and joy because we are here to worship this God and enjoy Him forever. That is why church has been such a prominent part of, of our life. Sunday gatherings because we are here to worship Him. Third, this is one of those teachings that have helped us to grow in humility. seeing the greatness of God it has prompted us to set aside more of our pride and pursue more true humility in Christ to the religious people say woe to the irreligious if you take pride in your moral achievements you look at people who are sinful and you say woe to them if you take pride in your sinfulness in your rebelliousness in your independent life and thinking You say, woe to the religious, those legalists, those fundamentalists, woe to them. Those of us who believe the gospel, we say, woe to me. I don't know about the religious, I don't know about the irreligious. Gospel believers say, woe to me. And in that way, there's humility. But woe to me can only be said when you have a right view of God, a high view of God. And then finally, just like Isaiah, and I hope and pray this is true for us, that what prompts our obedience, that what prompts all that we do is because of who God is and what He has done for us. After seeing God, tasting our own sinfulness, and after being touched by his grace and mercy that is the reason why we make so much of christ that is why we make so much of christ church that is why we do all that we do as christians and we do it not out of drudgery not out of duty we do it out of joy we do it willingly joyfully because of who god is and what he has done for us we believe this is what Christ has done for us in the past 10 years. That we have He has created us a people for Himself who delight to worship Him, not duty bound, not drudgery. We rejoice. We, we long to suffer and sacrifice for His name's sake. Because He has given us a revelation of who He is, who we are, and what He has done for us. Oh Lord, we, Lord, we are just um, so humbled. Who are we that you would concern yourself with us? You would be mindful of our lives, of our concerns, of our needs, of our prayers. Lord, in your high and exalted throne, you look down. And instead of wrath, you pour out upon us uh, love, mercy, and grace. You've give, give, given to us the forgiveness of all our sins. We are the most blessed of all people. So on this day, Lord, um, as you remember our 10 years, we go f- much further back we go to the beginning of time, before anything was created. We go to your um, eternal decision that was made in your, in your council, the Godhead, to save and elect people who will receive your salvation undeservedly so that your glorious grace might be known to all the world and that your greatness might be declared that your glory might be exalted. We are here as such people and we remember our salvation that you have given to us and we lift up your name. We exalt you. We cry out, Woe to me, but glory in the highest to Christ. Glory in the highest to the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we thank you and praise you this day. Lord, may we uh, in the next 10 years continue to grow in our knowledge of you and grow in our knowledge of the grace and mercy and love that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And it is in his name we pray. Amen.